Welcome to our podcast, Land and People, where we interview people who have ancestral connections to the land and who are working on the land. I am Melissa Kimera. I'm a conservationist and an artist here on Hawaii Island. Yeah, I'm Clay Traunix. I, I work at University of Hawaii at Manoa. I'm in the Natural Resources and Environmental Management uh, Department. I do extension, so I'm faculty, but I most of the teaching and stuff I do is working with folks that for their jobs and their work is working in conservation, watershed management, and land management. The views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of our funders or employers nor the, those of our guests. So our guest today, Mike Demota, is the curator of living collections at the Hawaii National Tropical Botanical Garden. And um, I'm so stoked to, to grab him and, and get him on here because um, he, like, I think I mentioned this during the interview, but he, I definitely consider him a mentor of mine. Um, when I was working at the National Tropical Botanical Garden years ago, I think that was around, I don't even remember, 2007 to nine, somewhere in there. I was a field botanist there and kind of, you know, really, I would say cutting my teeth, learning about all these restoration projects, learning the plants and and, and getting out and about. And then Mike Demota at the time was um, working in the living collection side. And so where he was, our interface was we were bringing him in seed and he was growing these plants out for restoration projects. And now he is the uh, curator of living collections. I think it'd be really cool to just clarify what gardens are for you know, what the role of a formal collection actually is and, and in in contrast to like a nature park or an outplanting right. site or something like that and, and um, you know, what, what his actual job is. The word curation really means that every plant that's in a collection at a botanical garden, all of the living trees, they are mapped down to, you know, not just what species they are, but where they came from, who collected it, where it was collected, right? When it was collected. And so these are this, you know, living resource of these, uh, the plants for research purposes, for education purposes, and everything is, is sourced back to where the provenance, right? Where, where it's come from. And I think the role that botanical gardens have come to play in Hawaii's extends way beyond that now, right? So it, we, we're not just repositories for these plants. And, and again, these were, um, you know, the plants coming from all over. So not just Hawaiian plants, the, like National Tropical Botanical Garden, Lion Arboretum, Foster Botanical Garden, they have collections from all over the world, which allows people to learn about these things. Um, but much more so in, you know, maybe the past decade, two decades or so, they've become like areas where we're storing seed, right? So bringing in seed, not only from around the world, but especially from native Hawaiian plants uh, for, for storage. Um, so rare things as well as common species that are then used in restoration projects. Um, they've developed tons of techniques, people working at this guitar, the horticulturist of how to propagate native plants for, um, for restoration and for their collections. And so just the amount of knowledge that we've gained from these institutions is pretty remarkable and really, really kind of core to a lot of the work that maybe we think is happening more up, up on the mountain, right? Like restoring these ecosystems is sort of like in their place. So the idea of like 
ex situ, which is like out of the place where all the botanical gardens are established versus in situ, which is like on in the sites where these ecosystems, these remnant forests, whatever we have left is, is you know, is actually um, still intact. Um, there's just this really kind of great relationship there where the folks that have the knowledge of the plants to, to kind of propagate them and keep them going. And then I think that's what we get in with Mike is the growing importance of being able to um, just provide people access to these plants, not only for research, but just to learn about them, right? Because not everyone is going to be able to climb the mountain. Like I've grown to appreciate this more and more, you know, maybe as I get older, but um, just how important the, the, these, these institutions are. Yeah. And what's really cool about um, Mike's interview, apart from the fact that we did have to end super abrupt because Mike's um, computer totally died there at the end. So apologies for that. But what's so cool is hearing um, Clay and him talk about um, two places I've never been to. And one is an islet called Lehua. Which is just off, just off the north coast of Niihau. It's like right off the northern tip of Niihau. And then Mike also talking about Niihau, which is pretty incredible to have him paint that that picture of two places that I've never been to. Um, that was that was amazing. And also, the thing I'm taking away about this interview with Mike is just his love of Hawaiiana, his knowledge of Aulalo Hawaii, which is Hawaiian language. His, um, I mean, that he danced hula as yeah. uh, you know, Kane in the '70s is like pretty amazing. Uh, he's like kind of done it all. So um, it's not just plants; it's Hawaiian culture and many other things. So it's right, and cool. coming into this sort of very you know, conservation work through the cultural connection, right? Yeah. He kind of came into caring for these plants through his connection to Hula. So I'll go ahead and introduce our next guest, Mike Demota, the curator of living collections at the Hawaii National Tropical Botanical Garden on the island of Kauai. So yeah, very stoked to have you, uh, chat with us today um well thanks and uh, it just and I, I, you probably don't know that bernie and i reviewed your resume when we, when we were when that position was being filled and uh, and the fact that you were in egypt and were applying for a job all the way back over here was like pretty impressive and, and, and well, i was trying and but I, I felt like such a kook because i you know i came in and thing i was like i am far from a botanist like i don't know what i'm looking at you know you have that just imposter syndrome uh full on but it was it was a pretty good way to, um, to learn. I mean, geez, like I, I learned so, 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 so much doing that work and, uh, also fortunate to get paired up with Natalia Tangelin, yeah. I think was just, uh, we had a blast. Um, it was a hard, very hard job to leave, to be honest. And you, you guys really gave us a lot of flexibility, uh, free reign kind of to do what we needed to do. And it was all in the context, I'm coming full circle now, it was all in the context of these restoration projects, collecting yeah. seed and, and trying stuff. And uh, any rate, I mean, it leads us kind of where you're at like what your title now is it's curator or of living collections, right? Yeah. Curator of living collections. It's basically kind of the same job, but, but actually in the last year or less than less than the last year, I, um, I don't have the, the nursery was in my department. It's no longer in my department. So I don't have any yeah. oversight in the nursery at all. One of the last big grant projects that Natalia did before she left was this Electron grant. Just to, since we are talking about Electrion and, and recording, can we can you like paint the picture or maybe Clay, you can talk about what Electrion is and, um, you know, just describe for our viewers who have like no under knowledge or understanding <laughs> about what it is we're talking about here. Uh, so Electrion Macrococcus, Macrococcus is what we have on Kauai. The Hawaiian name is Mahoi, which means twin. 
the fruits come out uh, two at a time. Usually they, they bear two fruit at a time. Usually. So they're twins. They're side by side. They're sapindaceae. So they're related to lychee. And um, there is some pulp on the fruit, which is really kind of bitter. Actually, it's not I wouldn't call it edible, but it's a big seed. And you can just imagine rats really enjoying those seeds. Um, when I was a volunteer at the garden in the late 90s, Ken and Steve, had I remember them bringing in several times big bags of Electron seeds from Ko'omau Canyon and Kauai Canyon. So they were pretty prolific in those days. Even though I don't oversee the, the collections day to day anymore, I still go to those plants. I mean, we went in, we set the air layers, we, air, we helicoptered them out, I planted them in, and I've been nursing them for all these years. I'm not about to let some scale insect take them out, right? So, so I did an air layer on the one we had in in McBride Garden, and in three months it was starting to root. So I told her, "This is it. I mean, sure, this is a cultivated plant, but if this will root, then it's a good ch- chance that the wild stuff will root." So yeah. we went into Kalalau, where Ken Wood showed me some electrons, and we could not refine those. Then we went mm. into Kauai Canyon, where we had a few points for electron there. We did find those on the points, and we actually found a bunch more that were not documented, that were had no points, oh, and some cool. nice trees too. Yeah. So we we ended up bringing out I don't know maybe ten or twelve or so uh, rooted air layers over a six month period. And uh, maybe six of them are rooted and growing in the native section now. So, you know, it's just too expensive to be going into the field looking for seeds every every yeah. year and un- undependable. And the, the whole notion was, and I did this with Hespermania and a few other things, was to bring it into cultivation, get mature material, which is what an earlier piece of a tree is. And then when they start flowering in cultivation, then we hand pollinate them in cultivation and stuff yeah. that way. So these electrons are all mature. One of them has flowered a few times already. Um, but the others, you know, they went from two and a half to three foot air layers to 15 feet tall now, some of them. I mean, I think of like um, Mahoe. I mean, I think of Pu'u Mahoe in yeah. uh, Oahe on Ulu Palakua side is like, a, you know, like for, for those of folks listening, um, you know, it's one of the rarest trees out there, right? I mean, it's really, it's dry dryland forest i want to say yeah dry on the dry side for sure i i can't remember if it's a hardwood or if it was ever used for for things like you know by hawaiians but it, it's it's a it's a very special tree very special tree and you know we're down we're down like on oahu for example it's like in the dozens at most yeah. right and and these are areas kind of what you were saying about the kind of humbug nature trying to get seed they're in pretty difficult to access places and they get hammered by like twig borer is the big one here and so these like the measures you need to control pests that's the other issue too it's like you can't really go apply you know these these kind of herbs pesticides to to these things where they are and then um you'll laugh at this because my i give this to my botanist friends all the time like xc2 is the new nc2 right and they hate it when i say it but like you we need to really Really, like you're saying, it's exact. It's like music to my ears. Like we need to think about these living collections in accessible places, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. only for producing seed and allowing these species to persist, but just allowing people to connect to them, you know, to, like to see Absolutely. these things. Yeah. So Mike, I, I do want to like backtrack a little bit um, and, uh, and hear about, you know, where you grew up, um, where you're from and who, and how did you connect it, get connected with the outdoors? So I was born and raised on Oahu on the slopes of Punchbowl Crater, the house I grew up in. My grandfather built that house and my, my grandfather's side of the family has been in that area since the late 1870s. So I was fifth generation growing up in that in that part of uh, Honolulu. I went to St. Louis High School and I mean there's a lot of Hawaiian culture and 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 all that, you know, in all parts of my family and uh, and when I got into high school I was very interested in in hula. I went to St. Louis and St. Louis is an all boys school but there are three what they call sister schools to St. Louis and one of my cousins went to 
St. Francis, uh, which is one of the sister schools. And so she was in the Hawaiian club, what, what was called Hui Onaokyo. And so when I got, got in as a freshman, I, I joined up right away. And John Lake, who became a living treasure of Hawaii, passed away a number of years ago, was the teacher mm-hmm. at the time. And I was with Kumu Lake since my freshman year. I was the only member in my class, actually. The thing about it is, you know, it, it was before the quote-unquote Hawaiian Renaissance. So there weren't a lot of men uh, dancing groups yeah. at the time. Right. Yeah. I, I just want to say that, Mike, I just went with some friends to Mary Monarch last week yeah, <laughs> and yeah, for the nice. first time in 30 years. And the last time I had been to see one of my best friends dance in high school. And man, it's like the Super Bowl, right? I mean, it's yeah. just, it's yeah. so, it's so incredible to be a part of that. So I can only imagine, I mean, you know, the, the Kane division is like, you know, they have to turn Halau away, right? And so probably in your your day, they were not that many. You know, the first Hula Expo that, that I had performed in was a, was at Queen Kapiolani Bandstand. It was, um, I guess it was the Queen Kapiolani Hula Festival. And uh, there were three men groups. And then there were maybe three or four men dancers in each group. So it was very, very different. But um, uh, I consider myself very lucky that at the time, so this was 1973, uh, at the time there were still a lot of what are now the legendary kumuhula of, of our time. Now what we call the legendary ones, they were all alive in those days and very active and teaching themselves. And, and uh, you know, we used to go to um, hula workshops uh, that were sponsored and held at either Leeward Community College or Kamehameha Schools. And all of these master kumuhula were there and teaching, you know, would, would conduct classes and all that. You know, hula is one of those things, you know, the, the, the Hawaiian mo'olelo and oli and all that are packed full of metaphor. And um, and so learning all that, to be able to, to interpret a hula, learning all that, and, and just, and even an oli is, is really, really important. But, you know, I mean, people like Yolani Luhine and Hawakali Kamau and, Auntie Edith Kanakaole and all these folks, Sally Wood. I mean, they're Mikey IU. They were all there and they were all teaching. And I got to learn from all a, a lot of them. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Amazing. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it, it, a lot of them, you know, they, they grew up speaking Hawaiian. So, and it's typical that you're saying a story and all of a sudden it's, they slip into Hawaiian because there are a lot of things that you know, in the Hawaiian mentality, there, there are many things that you that don't sound right in English. So you say them in Hawaiian. Of course. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I could speak Hawaiian pretty good even in those days. Um, I'm more fluent now than I was then. But wow. it was one of those things where you suddenly slip into, you know, the lyric of a song instead of saying the words in English because it's more appropriate sounding. The, the meaning is better. Because Hawaiian is a visual, it generates imagery. When I hear Hawaiian, images in my mind are what comes up, not the words and the translations. I know how lucky I was to be able to learn from and interact with all these great kumuhula of, their, of that time. I mean, it was, so we used to go up and make lays, and we'd go on, on the Manoa Cliffs Trail, for example, to go look for mm-hmm. palapalai ferns and stuff. And I always remember thinking about it. There's a spot where the koa tree is still there, and there was an ohia tree on the, on the other side of the trail. Mm-hmm. And I remember standing under that ohia tree wondering, why is it so hard to find native plants because mm. it's all weeds and it, you know even then I, I understood like everything are weeds what, why are there right. no native plants well i'm curious like um how did you even know i mean did you did you know what was native from um from the melee i mean who was pointing out because in those days like so many people we talked to on this podcast myself included like we're, we were not learning this in school no well, the, uh, the Kumuhula, I mean, going to the forest was a protocol in and of itself. 
Uh-huh. Right. And, you know, many native plants, if not all of them, have are, are kinolo of God from the Hawaiian religion, from the old religion. So you have to ask for for permission to enter the forest. And mm-hmm. this is one of the reasons why I think, you know, conserving all of these plants is so important is if we start losing these plants, then, then their meaning, then the stories lose their meaning. Because, right. you know, a couple of generations from now, people won't know what a mahoi is. Yeah. It might come up in a story and it's like, oh, what was that? Was, they'll think it's they're talking about somebody's twin when, when they're talking about the tree. Mm-hmm. Right. Those kinds of translations can be switched around readily when you're doing things using metaphor. So, you know, funny is I hadn't been up there for like 20 years or whatever, 30 years. And when I finally went back up on that trail a number of years ago, I got to the same spot and that koa tree is still there, but the ohia tree is gone. And the, the stump of the ohia tree is still there. So apparently it must have died and the, and the state guys maybe cut it down to make it safer. You know, after 30 years of not being on that trail, I still could find the, the, the Olanad plants in the same gullies that I knew they were in. And so, I mean, how did that transition? I'm just curious, like, because I know you've had other jobs that aren't related to conservation or what they do with the garden. Um, did that seem like when did you become aware that work like that is happening? My wife is from Niihau and she has all her family here. And, my, and you know, we were living on Oahu after we got married and stuff. But I was doing a tour job and I was traveling in her island quite a bit. We finally decided that we were going to move here. So we got a, we bought a house in the Hawaiian homestead on the west side. And uh, so happens that my neighbor a block away from me. Uh, was a little known field botanist named Ken Wood. And he would drive by my house. Apparently he would drive by my house every day. And I had my whole yard landscape with native plants. I'd cut down everything that was in this in my yard <laughs> and replace them with, with all native, appropriate native species. <sighs> so he, eventually one day he stopped and he had a truckload of mulch. He goes, do you need any mulch? And I had no idea who he was. I go, yeah, sure. I'll take take as much mulch as you want to dump. And so he came in and we, he looked at all my plants. We started talking and um, it took me a couple of months to, to get his name. And then I had to ask somebody like, do you know who this is? And they go, are you kidding? So I found out who Ken was and he would stop by my house kind of regularly. And, uh, you know, I, even then I had a small nursery and I was growing native plants in my, my nursery in my backyard. And, and he goes, you know, they always need help at the garden. If you want to volunteer in the nursery at the garden, um, I'll take you down there and introduce you to to Bob Nishek, the nursery manager at the time and all that. So that's when it's, I started as a volunteer at the garden in the late nineties. And I began uh, learning, you know, to the, ex- the extent of the kind of work that NTBG was doing. So you mentioned that you, um, you know, your wife is from Niihau and um, that you, when we talked earlier, you mentioned that you had, had been there and um you know, part of the show, we're, we're getting such a diverse group of people who've, who've done many different things um, in on the land, basically, everything, you know, and then that same diversity of like geography, too. And this is the one like missing thing <laughs> for us is someone who's been to Ni'ihau. And I'm wondering if you can maybe describe what you feel comfortable about describing, uh, you know, for Ni'ihau. You know, for the ninety-nine percent of people out there who have never been and who will never get the chance to be there, can you can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe some of the other remote places you've been to, like Lehua and? Well, Clay and I have been to Lehua. Clay has been to Lehua. <laughs> he, was our, he was our camel. He had to the water over there every couple of months for like a year, right, or longer than that, maybe longer. It was summertime every month in the summer. We would yeah, go. every three weeks. As I recall, it was every three weeks in the summer. I gotta tell you, Clay. The, the co-trees that we planted there, we only planted, if you might remember, we planted three co-trees and they barely grew for like the first five years. Those trees today are 15 to 20 feet tall and 50 feet in circumference. Three out of three all survived and they're like bird condominiums, the nios and all that. You wouldn't <laughs> believe how everything, all those shrubs are all thriving. 
filled in. That's yeah. awesome. It'd be even That's better cool. if they, you know, now that they've gotten rid of the rats, we probably have better success rates with with capris and a bunch of yeah. a bunch of other things that could be. The rats were eating the the capris that the capris survived too, but the rats kept eating the leaves and the stems. But what a project! But yeah, let's maybe we'll talk about Lehua in a little bit. So so Nihao, you know, I mean, most I probably should say is that it's it's a you know it's a one of the dry islands. It's it's a west. It's in the rain shadow of Kauai, so it's it is a low dry island. Um, it is still run as a ranch. They have cattle, sheep, and 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 lots of horses there. Fifty years ago or longer, uh, Nihau produced honey. They were famous for their their kiawe honey. They did shear mm-hmm. their sheep and send the wool off. And charcoal was the other big export from there. Today, the military leases the land at the summit at Paniao. So they have the radar station up there and it's part of the Pacific Missile Range facility. And, you know, that must be a, an income generator for the ranch. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that too much more ranching going on. I mean, the animals are all still there, but they don't really export livestock off the island very much anymore. There aren't that many folks that actually live there these days. I don't know. I guess it depends on time of year. It'll range from 30 or 40 to maybe 100, depending on the, like during the holiday season, a lot of folks go home for Christmas and all that. So the population goes up, but uh, people need to work. Even those that live there, they, they sell their shell lays uh, for income to buy their supplies and all that, but they need to have family on Kauai to do the shopping and send the stuff over when the board goes. So have, have supplies. Uh, I mean, the, is the land like highly altered like pretty weedy like eroded in areas you know like what you would expect essentially you know from decades of ranching and and just alteration of the land or are there areas that are that are you know i don't know uh, i wouldn't say intact but like just remnants of of maybe what what we imagine how well, to be right been, they have been there since who knows 1860s maybe when the robin when the sinclair's first bought it so it's pretty heavily altered, but even in time, like you, some of the old last generation that have most of them have passed now, you know, they'll talk about how the whole ranch was just grass. It was really good grass. It was pasture grass that has trended out. Mm. Oh, interesting. Mostly lantana and kiabe covering much of the island now. You know, they also have different animals there now. You know, the elan were, were released there from Molokai Ranch when they shut down, and there's a couple of. I think a couple of different kinds of African goats that were taken there as well. So that's going to impact the habitat, I'm sure. They were doing game hunting, right? Was that is that still going on? I'm pretty sure it's still very popular. You know, and you, you you get on the helicopter and you spend the day, and it's really expensive. And they're guaranteed to shoot something. There's wild sheep everywhere. There's bound to shoot a couple of rams every day. Gosh, yeah. so there's sheep, there's goats. <laughs> yeah, the pigs are scary because they're not afraid of anybody. There's hardly anybody there. What about the marine resources? I've heard it's pretty pretty amazing like in that regard because it's not overfished and it's not like heavily heavily used like because there's just not very many people right although folks do sometimes go over there to fish that's probably the biggest threat are the folks that come over from one of the, from these islands and go over there and, and fish and overfish right. and over harvest mm-hmm. because you know it's a cowboy culture there right it's a paniola culture so you know they're all cowboys even though they might not wrangle, you know, with cattle and all that stuff anymore. They all have their horses and they get around the island on horseback for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they, they, they depend on the ocean a lot. You know, they eat a lot of seaweeds and opihi and they fish, you know, all the mm-hmm. time. And, you know, other than the canned goods that get sent to them from Kauai, they depend on, on you know, the pigs and the sheep and then whatever they get out of the ocean. So the, the threat is, I mean, I remember hearing about this um, a few times. I mean, we probably read it in the paper. One of the bad fishing techniques that people have gotten in the habit of doing is bleaching. They'll go out there, they'll open a jug of bleach and kill everything. And um, 
there was a little bit of time where, you know, they were concerned that enough people had done that. There was a bad, you know, after effect of it for a couple of years, the, the, the bleach. Because that stuff doesn't die, doesn't stop. The bleach floats everywhere and kills everything. It stays in the water, right? It does. Because it, it doesn't mix with the water right away either. In the old days, people maintained a respectful distance. Fishermen from, from Kauai would go over there and stay offshore. They'd fish close to shore, but they wouldn't land and go get opihi and all that sort of thing. But, you know, people, the generations have changed over time and, I don't know. I think there are people that, are, that end up going over there. One guy came by my house here once a couple of years ago and asked if we wanted to buy opihi, and and I told him why. Where you got your opihi from? Nihau? And he, and he no no, and he got real defensive. But yeah, that's probably where he got it from. Oh. <laughs> so even the intention, I imagine, and again, I'm just speculating here from what I've read or heard, you know, of having that place be set aside, right? You know, like for Hawaiians, for Hawaiian people, culture perpetuation of that. It, it, it's even questionable about whether that can. Be, be, be maintained, be, you know, subsistence wise, because you've got drought, you've got like animals and other threats. And I mean, although the animals, of course, are, are a source of food, but, you know, you've just got overuse and, and other things. You know, the Nihauans are, are converted Christians and they're very, very strong in their in their faith and and it governs their life day to day. Um, but at the same time, they they know many old cultural practices that they don't I find that they don't realize that these are really old cultural practices that they're that they're doing or talking about just because they've grown up with it for so many generations they don't realize that some of that stuff is really unique for example uh, medicinal stuff like they they do uh, different Mm. medicinal things like what they call lao kahea and of course lomi lomi and all these other things which are traditional healing practices yeah uh, that they don't equate with like the old religion or the old way of living. They just they just do it and, and like, they're still doing it, still practicing it. What is the first thing you mentioned? Lao Kahe. Lao So it's it, kahe. It's like when you when you pray over somebody to heal oh, them. Yeah. So something like that would be a couple would be accompanied with know herbal medicines and all that sort of thing and a lot of them know all the all the old herbal medicines using modern invasive species mind you but they right. know what the herbal cures are and that sort of thing. A lot of a lot of them do. Is this different in then a way other like Hawaiians practice um, la'au, lapa'au or, you know, that, that sort of thing? Like, do you think that there are like, like regional? I mean, is this a distinct, I think that's disti- distinct to like I think Nihauan? so, but I, I don't think it, like I, I read a few excerpts in, in a book about um, Hawaiian villages in on Western Molokai and, and you know, it's a similar habitat, mm-hmm. right? It's super dry and you're very mm-hmm. scrubby yeah, and all that. And yeah. it seemed to me that like there were a lot of similarities there in the way they, you know, medicinal things and their, the way they lived. And, they, you know, they were kind of coastal and, and dependent on the ocean for a lot of their resources and stuff. So like the Nihauans, everybody always says they speak a different dialect, which really they speak an old style of speaking. It's not a really a different dialect. People are just used to hearing the post-missionary way of speaking, right. which tends to use all the Ks and, and all that stuff. Whereas the Nihauans speak a style that predates the missionaries arriving here. And so, uh, yeah, their sentence structure and... You know, I, I studied Shakespeare when I was in college. When I hear some of the old-time Nihauans speaking, <laughs> listening to them, the old-time Nihauans speak Hawaiian is the same as listening to Lawrence Olivier speak Shakespeare. It's beautiful, and it's grammatically perfect, and pronunciation. So it's it's a way a native speaker of Hawaiian would speak and have spoken for, for you know, a thousand generations. So, you know, when people say, oh, they speak a different dialect, oh, no, they don't. They speak better Hawaiian than, than all these great people put together. And not to pick again, not to pick on the U.S. people, but these folks, Nihauans, speak English with with a Hawaiian accent. Put it that way. It's not the other way around. Right. That's so. That's so interesting. I, it's reminding me of. Um, I, have you seen the Wind in the Reckoning movie? No. Um, okay. It, you know what it's about, though. It's about Pi'ilani and Ko'olau. Oh yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So Jason Scott Lee, I think he backed the project basically, which is how it even got made because it was in Olalo Hawaii, which was amazing because the main characters, um, Lindsay Watson plays Pi'ilani and then, and then Jason Scott Lee plays Ko'olau and neither of them were native speakers. So they, I've watched the interviews with them because they were just like, oh man, this is going to be so hard. But they knew they had to do it. And she almost, she was like so stressed out about it because she had a dialect coach and she was just like, how am I going to get on a horse, you know, speak Hawaiian in one full breath, a whole sentence, the whole thing from beginning to end and and say it with force. And, and it was just, it was pretty amazing. I mean, just to think like that somebody would take that on and also, I mean, learn it and then try to speak it with conviction and some sort of like, realistic take on it right i mean i'm thinking about like people study this for years four or five six like so long and it's just challenging so anyway well i mean that's like what language though it's you know you can study it and, and there's like but then living it right is a kind of it's a different animal it's just you're coming up in that so um right and and that's where fluency comes in you know it's um yeah I used shakespeare as an example a minute ago but it's like if you if you when you read shakespeare it's blank prose you just read the shakespeare and and there's nothing there, there's nothing in the writing to tell you what the emotion of that part of the writing is. Right. So you have to yeah, say yeah. it out loud. Yeah. The lines are not written in in single thoughts. They're written, in, you know, where the where the prose ends and the next line begins. So you have to read it out loud before the whole thing makes sense and you know where the emotion is supposed to come in. And so, um, yeah, any foreign language, you first have to change your way of thinking. You have to stop thinking in in English and how does how do I say this in Hawaiian? And then you just say it in Hawaiian. And and, and then the movies do this. You know, the Hollywood they hire um, ling- linguistic coaches. Like it was a Ma- Maori girl, I think, that per- played Princess Kaiulani in that one movie that they did with her. You know, most Maori yeah. grow up or learn to speak Maori. Um, and so I would have thought her her ability to say Hawaiian words would have been easier. But Maoris have that weird British accent too, right? So. And, you know, Hawaiians of every island, and the Nihauans were famous for this, but Hawaiians, the old timers from all the islands, love to talk in riddle and, and metaphor. And they would challenge each other by speaking in riddle sometimes just to see how, how well people understood, you know. And, you know, when I watched in Lord <laughs> of the Rings where they're doing that game with riddles with Gollum, I'm like, yeah, I know that, I know that game. But in Hawaiian, they're like challenging you and testing how well you know all these old sayings and stuff. You know, there's seven or eight different ways to use the word cut, to, to cut something. Every angle of cutting is a different word. When you're acting bigger or more important than you really are the word pe koi comes to mind right away that's someone who who pretends to be something they're not oh well that would go back to pe koi right i mean the person among the chiefly class they often gave them names of things that they were the opposite of or wanted them to be the opposite of right right so that's probably why they named her that because they didn't want her to be like that that's a cultural nuance you don't (laughs) tell somebody that their baby's really pretty you tell tell them that their baby's really ugly you know certain guys might get jealous and then do something to hurt your baby so you just say oh your baby's really ugly yeah yeah well like broke the mouth is actually from hawaii well you know this right it's like from the old Hawaiian saying of like, they, that's in the old, like, Alala Hawaii, like, it, it literally translates, I don't know what it, you know, what it is in Hawaiian, but it literally translates to broken mouth, because it is so good. And of course, it's the opposite, right? Of like you're saying. So I- that's cool. I mean, so many languages are like that, where you, you know, I mean, I've, probably gotten fluent enough mostly in Spanish, but there's words just that. And it's so close to English relative to like Hawaiian and English, but where words don't work, there's not an exact translation. And some of the expressions in Spanish are so like the, there's no way to really, uh, translate it exactly. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and then given all of the multiple meanings that words have in Hawaiian, it's like you could only imagine like, hey, that's like a life takes a lifetime to really get all that nuance. But, you know, I got to give them credit. Yeah. They want to do that. You know, they do a movie or whatever and they do it in the Hawaiian language. I when I was going to UH, the Kumukahua group, which, you know, was a, was a lab theater part. Um, I, I think even then there was there was a play or two written in, in Hawaiian and they weren't or might have been a short thing. But, um, you know, the people were trying even even back then when when there was no Hawaiian language schools. So, to speak. so Mike, I, I do. We do want to ask you about your your work at NTBG um, and, you know, the collections that you manage and you have managed in the past. Um can you, I mean, you've talked about some of the rare species in the collection, uh, Mahoy, um, and, and this question is from Chuck, because <laughs> he wanted to know this, but can you tell us about the Kanaloa in your collection and uh, how it's doing? And I guess we should say for our listeners what Kanaloa is. Maybe you can tell us about Kanaloa for people who don't know what that Kanaloa. is. Kanaloa. So I'll go back even a little bit further, because Clay worked when Dr. Bernie was there. Dr. Bernie and other uh, paleoecologists you know, would, would take core samples on different islands, particularly on Oahu, and look for macrofossils and pollen deposits. A lot of them, you know, if you read, do, read the research, Pichardia pollen, the Lulu pollen, native palms, is one of the dominant pollens that they find in these core samples. But for a long time, they were finding another very dominant pollen sample that they could not identify. You know, I talked to Bernie's wife, Lida, who, who was like the specialist on the pollen and did all that research. And she combed through the Smithsonian herbarium of Hawaiian plants looking for pollen that resembled this, this particular pollen that they, no one could find it. So fast forward to, I guess it was 90, 1990 or 1991, when they were they had started the survey work at uh, Kaho'olawe. There are two offshore islets. Ale Ale is one and Pu'ukoa is the other. And they're on the south facing side of, of the island. And so they were on the cliffs above that. And I don't remember exactly who was there, but I, I'm pretty sure. Well, I know Ken was one of them, Ken Wood, and I think Pearlman and Sam Gon and maybe Joel Lau might have might have been there. And there may have been others. And so they had enough rope for Ken to rappel down the cliff. And he kind of swam over to Ali Ali and then and then free climbed Ali Ali. If you've ever seen it, it looks like a pyramid and it's very steep at the bottom of this pyramid all the way around it. So the fact that he was able to get up it is kind of remarkable. He told me that he crossed over near the top and came across these plants that he told me that he he, he had this overwhelming feeling because he realized that he was looking at something that had never been described before. He he you know just kind of knew that it was native and didn't know exactly what it was. And I don't know if he had his backpack, but knowing Ken, he took an you know a voucher specimen and and then and then had to get back down, which which he said was a very har- harrowing experience and then climbed the rope to get back up the cliff and then told them all, look what I, look what I found on that island. And so after time, you know, studying and all that, it was determined to be a, not only a new species, but a new genus that had not been described. And as they began doing the research, they found that that was the pollen that was co-dominant in the, in the core samples with Pichardi and a few other plants that had not been, you know, identified before. So apparently uh, Kanaloa was really common. So, you know, it's named Kanaloa because um, Kaho'olawe is an embodiment of Kanaloa and uh, the, Hawaii, the Hawaiian name for it is Palopalu Kanaloa, which refers to the heart of Kanaloa because the seed is the shape of a heart. Only two seed collections were ever made. And that was the first ones that Ken picked up when he found the plant. And then a second collection was made, I think, in, um, in 2010 or 12. And for, no, for reasons that nobody knows, the, the wild plants never produced any more seeds than, than that. A lot of the rare plants that we have today are pushed to the brink. They're growing in areas that are not their prime habitat, but they're there because goats and other animals have eaten them up in, in better habitats. So I think the Kanaloas are there just because there was there were no rats there or anything else. And so, you know, that was their last holdout. 
And uh, they were stressed all the time. You know, Kaholawi is a, is a dry leeward island. Fast forward, we ended up with three plants at NTBG that we don't have any now. Our plants have all since died. And um, one of the things we don't know is what the longevity is. Obviously, nobody knows anything about the plant, right, as far as that kind of thing goes. But the three plants we had, two of them got to be really big. One of them's always stayed very small. But our, our three plants always produce male flowers. So it's dioecious um, for the most yeah. part. Um, only once did, did our biggest plant produce a female flower. And we only know that because it started to produce a capsule, which eventually aborted. And so we never got seeds, out, viable seed off of it. The second seed collection that Ken brought over, I do believe we sent a seed or two to Lion Ar- Arboretum. The, the Koholawe Island Reserve Commission and all that had have a lot to say with, the, with whatever happens to material that's collected there. But Ken and I, we talked about, think, and, and we thought that we had our shot on Kauai. We never got seeds off of it. Our plants did as well as they could for 20-something years before right. they died. This is a Maui Nui species now. So let's let's let Maui Nui right. uh, be responsible for, for, for the next generation. And so Maui Nui Botanical Garden got one and Anna Palomino got one seed. I'm not going to take credit for that. Or I don't think we should, but it was a really good call because their plants have been doing very well. That's awesome. You know, Anna's plant has produced fl- female flowers and plenty of seeds and they were able to get, get it growing from cuttings too now. And it's a real positive spin to, to an otherwise, you know, desperate kind of situation. And um, a lot of stories of desperation and conservation in Hawaii. Yeah, there are a lot of successes. That's why I jump on the whole thing with Lehua because there are a lot of success successes as well. We just don't make a big deal of it. We always want to talk about invasive species overrunning something, and <laughs> we need the money for that. I get, I get it. We need the money for that. But you you need to show the people that are donating or, or people that are coming up with grants or what, whatever. They need to see that it can be done. This is not a desperate yeah. situation yeah. in the sense that it's throwing good money after bad. We can do this. You know, if I had my way and I had an unlimited budget, Lehu would be covered in native shrubland right now. It would be exactly yeah. what Nihoa is. It'd have all the same species that Nihoa's got, Lehu would have. And then they could bring yeah. the Nihoa miller birds over and let them go on Lehua. I mean, I never thought about it, but even, you know, going over there since they've done, like, you know, however many years after the rabbits and all that thing. I mean, there was plenty of stuff coming in, right? It was like, oh, pa'uohiyaka everywhere. And, yeah. you know, you, you, you see the, reco- like, there's potential to recover. And obviously- from working on fire for so long. It's like, that's the message here is like this, these things have capacity, places have capacity to bounce back. The plants do, uh, they just need a little, they need a little help, a little nudge here and there. <laughs> Getting rid of the rabbits and the rats are going to be, cause they're not part of the ecosystem, natural parts of the ecosystem. So the seed bank, when you and I used to go there, the uh, Elima was starting to recover. And right. Ken was saying when he first went in 2007, they didn't see Elima anywhere except after the big crack on the far corner because of because the right. rabbit never got over there. But there is a seed bank for Elima, so that recovered. Uh, but but you know, there's panicum, toradum. There's a lot of stuff. All things being equal, boy, if we had done a b- bunch of planting this past winter with the rains we've had now, man, yeah, we'd have such good su- survivorship for this next season. Yeah. So it's a little bit frustrating for me being the plant guy because you know I, I realize that they're doing a lot of work with with uh, reestablishing seabird colonies on Lehua, you know, my take is, I think I inherited, you know, learning hula and all this stuff. It's, it's the whole of it. It's not, you don't separate, it's it's an ecosystem thing. You know, our modern term is, is ecosystem. The Hawaiian word for that is the vow. W-A-O, vow is the forest, the kanahele. It's, it's all of it. You know, my take for Lehua is, you know, restore the, the vegetation and the birds will come yeah, and they come will back. find their niches. Mm-hmm. You know, some birds want to be in the shrubs. That's why the Niles are really good for the red-footed boobies. Well, it's funny. You, you talked about that, that, you know, the condos for the, for the birds. And it was that one scraggly uh, kiave, right? Like up right. past the uh, weather port up there that, 
And, you know, even in that, they were getting hammered with the egrets. I mean, I had like a really gnarly story one day going with a bird biologist having to get rid of all the egrets in the tree. But, you know, and that there was nothing that was like the only three dimensional structure there was at the right. time. Right. Um, but yeah, so, there, there are, yeah. I, I agree, like there, that's, it's a cool example where, where stuff works. And then I think we do have bias because, and that's really how I got into plants and, you know, was going back to school for botany because realizing you were, end up working on these, I had the good fortune, honestly, because I got to learn so much, but working on these wildlife projects and you're like, man, we had this marbled murrelet, this one little bird on the West coast and it, you know, in California, it only nests in these giant trees. And so they're spending all this time, like studying the bird. I was on these research projects, studying the bird and tracking and stuff. And you're like, I mean, if you just don't cut down the big trees, like the bird will be fine, you know, right. <laughs> like the whole, the whole, it just was a little bit inverted in my mind. And so, yeah, it's, it's totally. Sometimes the answer is really, really simple. You're right. Oh man. You know, but they just wanted to know which ones they could cut down. I mean, yeah. in that context. So <laughs> that's a whole other separate story of, you know, painting or surveys. Yeah, just a different, a different, uh, we've talked about this. Yeah. I don't, yeah. You know, don't want to go off the deep end here. <laughs> It's okay. You can, Clay. Um, no, I was going to say, well, who is in charge of the offshore islets just generally? I mean, does DLNR have like purview over? I think it's Division yeah, yeah, and- Wildlife here now. They're, they're the lead on all the Lehua work. And they let us take over. I was asked to organize a cultural advisory committee that I did to get to take over. Four, four of us went over April of last year. You know, and, and I'd read the archaeological report uh, for Lehua and um and so I kind of was shown, you know, me, Ken, I went over there with Ken Wood a few times and he pointed out some of the, the archaeological features and the, some of the living sites and all. But when I went with the advisory group last year, um, some of these sites took on a different, a whole new meaning. That one rock platform clay that was right across the channel from, from Niihau, you might remember seeing that. It was yeah, yeah. Distinct platform. I initially thought that it might have been a kuula, which was a fishing shrine. But when we stood there, when I went with the group, we stood there and we looked over at, at Niihau and we, there was a peak on Niihau at Paniyau that it lined up with, then you turn immediately oh. around and look up and the summit of Lehua lined up with it as well. So it might have been a, a transect for uh, the sun or, you know, uh, right. solstice. I mean, I, we don't know, but it immediately took on a different look because everybody was looking at it with different eyes. We weren't just looking at it from, you know, restoration plants or whatever. This is like, this is well, why were the Hawaiians built this here? Yeah, yeah, totally. So there's more to it than that. And, you know, when you hear the stories, Lehua is pretty prominent. I mean, it's part of the Pele migration story. And and Hiyaka left a Lehua flower there, and that's how it got its name. And uh, the, one of the shark god's sons lives in that cave that's that's there uh, next to where they used to have the lighthouse power generator. And was able to get a lot of place names for a lot of the features that are there. And, you know, there's a spring that's uh, there that is named for the uh, mudskippers. That has that Niihau also has uh, an area with a with a spring along the coast that has the exact same name. So oh, wow. some of the Niihau's, I was telling them the story about finding this, and they're the ones that told me the name. They go, "Oh, that's that." They told me the name, and they go, "We have one on Niihau too." And if you ever listen to the chant, "Ehoi Kealohi Niihau," the name is called out in that chant. Oh. So when she said that, I went. Holy crap. Yeah, that's right. I know that name. <laughs> I mean, you're right there when you're on the south side of Lehua. It's like Nihau's like right there in the yeah, channel. And yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a pretty spectacular. Like it's hard to uh, to sort of like envision just the thing we're talking about this island, but it's this sort of half submerged cinder cone. And right. I don't know how high it goes up, maybe a few, 500 feet or something like that. I don't know. 700, yeah. 700 feet. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's spectacular. And you like look at it on the map. You know, and you can see this little kind of crescent-shaped island above Niha, but when you're on it, it, it feels big. You know, you get up to the top of the other side and look down in the crater, it's like, whoa, okay. Uh, but yeah, 
it's yeah it's some of the hiking uh, is pretty harrowing too you know because yeah. it's, it's 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 volcanic tough so it crumbles really easy and i and i weigh a little bit more than clay so i i tend to send rocks down all the time i always stay behind everybody so in case rocks fall down from from under me they don't roll down it's what i that's cool that that stuff's still hanging on so like melissa we would go over there it's in the summertime where they had a couple restoration sites and uh they had irrigation set up but there's obviously no like no water over there so what we would do was we had a deal with one of the charters like hola hola charters i can't remember what company it was and we would bring a bunch of wild water in like five five ten gallon jugs and we would Mm -hmm. go on the tour so we'd like hang on the boat you know like the the cat tour (laughs) boat and they would do their snorkel trip and while the tourists were snorkeling the guys on the boat would help us haul water jugs on surfboards we'd paddle them over and then that was our job we had to like haul them up to the top of the little where the little catchment was and then uh and then we would go to get seed collections so like get ready for the next round so we put more plants out gosh that is so cool very cool project i mean one of those things where you're like i can't believe like it's just amazing that <laughs> people had you guys did it mike i mean you guys really made it happen out there you lived out there like a week at a time and for you know i, I never knew how loud whales could be because they'd be in the channel like all night and you're like waking up all, it was pretty funny you're like i could you know yeah, yeah, so much you, they, they, you can breathe you can hear them singing and yeah right there crazy. next to where the tent the campsite is yeah yeah. Wow. All all of these things I never knew about Clay. Like one that he was in Egypt, and two he lived on Lehu. Yeah, <laughs> well, because you had to wait to the next tour, right? Yeah, they right. all do it every day, so you had to like whatever it was Overnight, Tuesday yeah. to I don't know wow. Tuesday to Friday or something like that. Take hundred gallons, so we take a uh, uh, twenty-five gallon jugs, yeah, and they paddle right. them all ashore for us with their surfboard plus our gear and our cooler, and you know, like I went yeah. on a bunch of those trips too. But Clay and Natalie were the two. Regulars, they humping up know, the. the <laughs> yeah. well, we bought the pump. Remember, we used to just dump the water. Into oh yeah, a, that's right. Pump, that's pump that water up because that was just that crazy. was a big right. I forgot about that. That was a big game changer. Having I still the pump have that down pump, there. by the way. I still that's have that hilarious. Yeah, that is. Getting that thing, it was like we got to get this thing going. A couple couple trips, like we couldn't get the thing started. And you're like, no, 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 no. We're not walking this stuff anymore. Getting chased off well, that little planting platform by the monk seals. Yeah, it's yeah. a cool zone. Wow, that that's amazing. I mean, it's so cool to know that these places in Hawaii still exist and they're still, you know, and they're just like, they're just sort of a model really for the sort of restoration that we think of at small scale. It's like they're isolated. You can get rid of the rats. You can, you know, re- potentially reestablish birds. You that's can. getting better, right? It's like a place yeah. it's like from, you know, just ecologically, like the birds and the plants, it's, it's, it's getting better. It's uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're starting to document uh, some of the smaller petrels that were, docu- were that were known to nest there that stopped nesting there. And they're coming back now. They're, they're recording. I think they've actually recorded nesting sites for like the Bulwars petrol and maybe the Bandrum storm petrol. So, so yeah, it, you know, it's an ideal. And what, what's really good about, about there for any of these birds, especially if they were to be able to get uh, like Hawaiian petrols to nest there is that it's offshore. So there's no danger of streetlights at night, bringing oh. the birds, uh, bringing the fledgings down out of the sky. So that, that's ideal. We did that work at Nihoku at, at the Kilauea lighthouse. We did a bunch of planting, Mm-hmm. They built a predator-proof fence there, and they put burrows. And then we uh, we grew, you know, a, b- a bunch of plants and planted them out there to try and create uh, some native ecosystem for the, for these uh, burrows. And those birds, the original translocated uh, petrels, Hawaiian petrels, are coming back now. They, they've come full circle and they're returning so to, the, cool. to the translocation site. 
to, to Nash. That's awesome. Yeah. And talk about loud. I mean, like those are what Kanye are like, they're so noisy, <laughs> scrabbling around all night. That's so funny. It's so funny. I know why people get enamored with birds. They're pretty cute. They, they wail all night. I never, and you know, the first trip I ever went there, I kind of had a problem with sleeping with them yeah. making that noise. But after that, it never bo- ever bothered me. It's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. Was yeah. Oh, right it was like a lullaby after a while. And as, let me tell you, <laughs> it's, it's a cross between a crying baby and a cat wailing. That's what it sounds like. And thousands of them, not just one or two thousand of them. All over, yeah. <laughs> Under the weather port and everything. So I guess coming to today, Mike, um, you are still in charge of collections, technically. Right. And are you, um, you know, tell us about your work. I know you said you're not um, overseeing the nursery work per se, but are you doing educational programs? Are you just like inventorying what you guys have, like maintaining? One of the functions that's in my department is the uh, plant records office, which is responsible for the the database, the living collections database. And um, it's been a a practice at NTBG um, for a number of decades now that, all collections come in with provenance. So we would prefer, it's, it's stated in our collections policy, our living collections policy, that that ideally plants plants are wild collected and come in with a voucher and with provenance of that collection. So that's not hard to do with native plants because we're doing those collections ourselves. Um, we don't, because we don't have a budget to collect, collect material outside of Hawaii unless we're doing, for example, the flora of the Marquesas Islands, mm-hmm. uh, which we just published. You know, they worked on that for like 20 years and they finally just published it. And a lot of voucher specimens came in for that, but no no living collections. We had, we really did not grow very many plants from our South Pacific work. We maintain the database. Databasing and that whole computer thing is not my strong point. I'm a plant guy. I want to grow plants. But because it was in my department, you know, I worked under Dr. Bernie, who was the acting director of living collections at the time. Um, I understood fully the, the importance of it. If we don't have a functioning database that's user-friendly, that has all the information in it, then we're just a big park. We have a, a scientific collection that requires this information. And, you know, years of maintaining that and being, you know, I'm almost like sometimes like the living collections cop, you know, I, you know, people submit seeds and <laughs> your three months uh, backlog is get, getting oh out of hand gosh. you need to catch up and. You know, because we need that information. So anyway. Session forms. I have memories of. <laughs> it's all. And now it's all online. We have a drop down yeah. in, a, in, a, in a collections form. And there's most of it is drop down and you just click, um, you know, on prearranged text. And there's a few spots where you write in the associated species, things like that. But you can even you can take your GPS point on a, a smartphone app and it immediately imports to your collections page. So that and then planting out. So you talked, we asked about inventory. The other side of, of that equation then are when you've grown plants out, we send a lot of seeds to, to the seed bank because we don't have any big restoration projects right now. And uh, material comes in in spurts. It's not as regular like when Clay was working with us. We don't get big seed lots like that in, anymore. So um, unless we need it for a project or if it's, you know, if something common comes in like like alahe, but it's collected in a spot that we really don't have that representation anymore, then I will set aside a bunch to, right. to grow out and add to the living collections. Because, you know, we assume that it's a common species today, but 20 years from now, we may want the genetics of that population in the restoration project elsewhere on the island. Right. So, you know, I, that's kind of what I do as far as curation goes. I'll look at collections as they come in. And, and if we don't have it represented in our ex situ collections, then I will add plants to the ex situ collections. If we get collections in that, w- that they're recalcitrant, something rare, I will generally send all of them to the nursery to grow out and we'll find places for them to go because we don't want to waste that seed either. Right. But if it's, if yeah. it's um, yeah, so, you know, there's uh, uh, millicopes and a few other things that are not common, but they're not listed yet that, you know, we want the seed bank to be able to research as well. So we may 
set aside some seed for them to do trials. How, how close can you freeze this? Yeah. You know, and to have still maintain viability, stuff like that. Everybody's doing that kind of work right now. And it's really important. Yeah. Okay. I have a question for you. How many seeds do you think you have in your seed? Cold in your cold storage. In my head, I think a million. <laughs> do you have like a million? <laughs> I was gonna say, I do think you we might have a million ohia seeds for that matter? <laughs> oh, wow. just of one of one species. Okay, total. Yeah, I don't like know. You know, if fifty million. <laughs> I can go to another page and maybe find out. Where's my cell phone? Oh my gosh! No, I mean, <laughs> and because because we're gonna paint the picture. I think I'm imagining what we're gonna say in the introduction, which is really gonna be describing what it is you know, a garden does what a living collection is and how it differs from a park. And that's really important. And and so I'm just thinking like, wow, you know, you guys have, must have so many seeds. And do you have like backup? You must have like cold storage and then like a backup in case that thing like goes down. Do you have all these like contingencies? Well, we have backup generators and, and all that at our botanical research center to support the seed storage, the freezers and everything else for seed storage. So yeah, all that's been taken into consideration and it's always evolving because there's always better technology. And it's come a long way in, in not that long of time. Like when I was there, we were like stuffing envelopes in a refrigerator at the back of the nursery, right? Like that. Yeah, <laughs> so it, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that wasn't all that long ago that we changed that out. But it, that is kind of, funny, kind of a funny image, but yeah. Well, it is. And I, I kind of have a question, I guess, it, and I just love to hear what your, your you know, how you'd describe this or what your, what your take is on it. But, you know, when I was working there, I was kind of a punk about like, oh, you got to get up on the mountain. This stuff is for the mountain in terms of like, you know, the collections and what should this be done with the seed and, and really, you know, this in situ mentality. And I feel like I've, you know, come around and part of coming around was, was Dave Bernie's projects where he was doing these like, you know, orchards of native plants and really what like clicked for me because we would be like, now we're going, we want, we want to get stuff from the top of the mountain. And then he had a couple of days where he got us to go collect seed with volunteer groups. And it was like seeing people in like wheelchair, like being able to go up and collect seed off these plants. And it just like clicked. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is so important, right? Like the, the role that botanical gardens can play and, and establishing these things for people to access outside because not everyone can go up to the top of the mountain. And so I'm kind of curious what you think, you know, how the perception or maybe role of botanical gardens has changed in that mentality of like concert or protecting the stuff up Malka and maybe where you think it, it needs to go. Like what more can we be doing? How better can we be using these resources? The gardens, I mean. When the Hawaii strategy for plant conservation first got published, I pretty much spent the day reading it close, carefully to see uh, what uh, the recommendations were. And one of the things they did call out, although seed banking is still a real, it's considered a, an important conservation tool. Um, yeah. But Again, and just to reiterate, you know, this, I, I know how valuable and important the seed bank work is, but I'm a live plants guy. I'm a living plants guy. And, um, you know, I work for living collections and I know the seeds are alive, but my take is plants create ecosystems. 
even in a botanical garden. And so, Clay, yeah. one of the things that I, that I asked you and Natalia to do, you probably don't remember this, is to collect as many wild uh, common species as you could. Yeah. Because, you know, we need yeah. enough for Lehua. But, you know, rare plants don't form a, a single stand of their own kind in, in the forest in nature. Rare plants are part of the ecosystem. They're part of, of, of a community of plants. And the community is primarily made up of common species. I spent the first, you know, seven or eight years working in my position at the garden, creating that native, common native ecosystem within the living collections. At so I planted right. lots of nayo and aali'i and as many pachardia as we could get going to improve the conditions. Because you get this diversity of, of plant species, the soil chemistry will change. We were composting mm -hmm. and mulching constantly because we needed to make it more like the forest than it was. We're having plants in living collections in botanical gardens, and 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 so you know you have the conditions are set where like our electrons are doing really really well. Uh, Euphorbia haeleliana is doing really, really oh, well. Man. And other rare plants. It's my favorite. Right, right. Me too. <laughs> you know, so let's um, let's let's uh, focus more funding and more resources on ex situ collections within botanical gardens so that they can support conservation and restoration work elsewhere. If you right. get, you know, and it depends. Some, some botanists are like, no, you can't mix populations. Um, and so they might get a little upset that you might have, you know, electron from different parts of the island. But, you know, my, my take is that these plants are not getting more common in the wild. They're getting rarer in the wild. And if you only maintain a population from one valley, then you're encouraging inbreeding depression, right? Your, right, your right. The genetics are too similar already. But if you bring, you know, they're the same species on the same island. Who doesn't, who can't? No one can tell me that 500 years ago that there wasn't a huge population of electron all over right. the island and that gene flow was common. Right, so, right. Um, you know, we've in a, in a way, you know, with with the ungulates and everything, we've artificially, I think, artificially created, you know, secluded populations. Cisbania yeah. probably had various forms on in all their populations at one time. But they've been so isolated for so long that you can tell the Ka'ena Point Cisbania from the Kauai one, the Poli Hale one, because right. they're really, really different. But I bet all the forms grew in all the dunes at one time. Yeah, I'm sure it was all along the coast. Yeah, yeah. there was more genetic flow between the and so the different forms and, and and all that were were prevalent. Whereas now they're all single types. You know, you don't you don't see the tree types and and shrub types. You know, prostrate types in the same population anymore because they're so they're like closely related now. Right, they're all this this bottlenecks, and then it's so. I mean, the shame really is like. There's so many kind of genetic questions that we could be asking about each species, but we're not, we don't have the resources and that like, no. we're not going to get there, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. I know. And so one of the things that, you know, like when Natalia and I went up and I set air layers on Hespermania legatii and got them rooted. Um, right. One of the things that to, we had somebody who was doing genetic work at the garden at the time and it was all about, well, we really need to get up there and, and do the and do the genetic work on all the wild plants to see where we need to make our collections so that we can make the collection strategic. And at the time, the belief was there were about 200 individuals. I don't think anybody thinks there's that many now. I think everybody thinks there's 40 or 50 individuals. What I asked him was, so in other words, we should stop. And I understand resources are limited, but we should stop doing this work on the plants that we know about <laughs> until we get the genetic report, until we know what the genetics are. Is that, what, is that, is that the conclusion? In the meantime, these yeah. plants are going to just go out. They're going to disappear. And I can say this because, uh, yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm in academia, so it's like taking the piss out of myself. But I, we were, uh, there was a really cool, um, you know, Lauren Weissenberg and Matt, Matt Keir, uh, and a bunch of others from the Smithsonian. Warren Wagner was there, organized this genetics workshop, like rare plant genetics workshop. It was multi-day thing, on, I mean, all on Zoom. 
but uh, it was great, right? It was very, very cool. We tackle all these different issues about genetics and diversification and all these things we're talking about right now. But the funny thing was, was I kept asking um, the researchers, the geneticists, I'm like, so how long would it take to get the... Oh, well, you know, if we had like, no one could really give an answer because it is just these things take time. And I don't think there's a disconnect when you talk to someone like Hank Oppenheimer or Ken or Steve Perlman and like the changes that they're seeing, you know, year to year in these populations, I think there is the sense that we don't like time is running out for, for, for some of these populations. So, I, mean, I, I hope I'm remembering her research project correctly when uh, Lauren did that Shadia Kali and she had a she had a mixed population from koalau plants and and wainai plants, and they they were really uh, strong genetically. Really yeah, they strong. kicked ass. Yeah, they. Were. Thank <laughs> you. Exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. We had Shadea Kwayensis uh, seed sent to us uh, from the University of California Irvine, Steve Weller, and um, uh, of different species of Shadea, and the ones that were that he hand pollinated from different wild populations. We had to wonder if those are the real Shadea Coyensis because they were so right. robust. Oh, funny. And uh, yeah, bigger, wider leaves and really robust and not frail, you know, brittle plants. That, little things. That were, that we're used to seeing <laughs> in, the, in the field. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's a big, that's a big uh, discussion. It's the same as, as uh, seed banking. And, you know, I don't want to, again, I don't want to diss any, any, you know, we, the Dustin in, in our seed bank uh, at NTBG is doing fabulous work. Um, I think we need to invest as much energy, though, in the research. And we've been talking about this at the garden recently on on how to maintain extra collections of rare yeah. native plants to to the benefit of the species. You know, I, I'm kind of playing that 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 song myself. Like, well, let's get all these air layered individuals in. Let's hand pollinate. You know, I would love to see the garden adopt that as an institutional um, objective because because we, that would be a big contribution to to conservation for, from our end. Oh, completely. And it's happening, you know, even, you know, I, this is like full disclosure because my wife, um, who, who says she has some, she has some seed for you, by the way, but she's been a little out of commission lately. Gigas, Gigasiphon, she's got seed. She said, tell me, tell me, I guess he went, but you know, she has, uh, she's been planting, uh, Eugenia Colaoensis yeah. at Cocoa Creators. You can go ahead and check it out. And they just, this winter, all these seedlings are coming up out of the ground and we're like, what do we do? Right. Like it's kind of this cool thing where, oh, here, this is cool, you know, but we, it was unplanned. And so people are a little bit uh, conservative, right? Because it's like, we don't know who crossed or what was what there's just this next generation. But at the same time, I mean, man, there's, there's, there's way worse problems to have than like too many rare plant seedlings to try to figure out what to do with. Volunteering on their own. Right. I yeah, know. exactly. That's great. It's like seeing hibiscus brachyrugiae seeds sprouting at Cocoa Head. You know, all the most they have, they're like, oh, there are worse problems to have than to have all these volunteers totally. popping up. So, <laughs> yeah, I've seen those. You know, uh, the other thing that uh, that people need to get over themselves with, you know, when I first started working at the garden, I used to get that, well, it'll never grow here. It'll never grow here. This is one of the things that Dr. Bernie's research, like they found macrofossils of species that we today associate as being only at high elevations. Right. But, you know, tell that to the plant. I mean, I got a lecture on growing in the garden. <laughs> and now, granted, Coquia Canyon is not that high, but we have Coquia Coyensis growing and flowering every year in the garden. And so, you know, those species were everywhere. And yeah. if, we, if we grow them at lower elevations in our botanical gardens, then the genetic makeup within those plants that allows them to grow those low elevations will express itself through subsequent generations. Yeah. And uh, the more we collect F1 seed and, and grow them out, the more we will get plants that are well adapted to the lower elevations again. Yeah. Because they were there before. There's no question about it. I mean, I love – I don't know who did it, but I've seen renditions of coastal forests with – 
with with oh, oh you know all these native honey creepers in the coastal forest trees yeah. and you know i see that I, when i first saw that i'm like this is somebody with a great imagination because most people look at look at it and cannot imagine that as being a real scenario but it was it was and can can again be we need good we need people with good imaginations to be thinking about where 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 this all goes for sure gosh mike now you're in the dark over there and i'm, re- I'm looking at the time it's 7 23 we've kept you for so long oh my gosh my battery's going to um, die on my computer too oh no is there anything you want to add um before we close i mean you've given us so much inspiration um you know the work that you've been doing um i mean it's so clear that you're like so passionate about uh, i mean everything the culture the language um you know perpetuating hawaiian culture through the plants um keeping you know good records and and you know the collect and maintaining the robustness of the collection the living collection like oh no <laughs> yeah that's um, hilarious that's so funny yeah i was trying to summarize that for our audience i'm gonna say awkward goodbye 